Hey everyone, it's the TetraCast. It is July. What's the date? Adam, help me out. Uh, it's the 4th of July. All right. I actually feel a bit right in the face that I missed that. It's the second half of the year. It's the TetraCast. You're seemingly here every week. I am your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are George Foster. Hello, everyone. Uh, Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. Keeper of the calendar, and James Galizio. That's good. So, it's actually been a quiet week when I wasn't expecting a quiet week. We had a couple, uh, you know, slower months earlier in the year, but it's been pretty, you know, hot and happening for a good while now. But it seems like things are kind of taking a lull before they pick up in late July. And we're expecting to see more details about, you know, next-gen console releases, about Xbox's big blowout, which seemingly keeps getting pushed back further and further, about when we'll finally see more details on what they've got planned. But we did have a couple surprises this week, as we always do. Though, as always, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been playing. And looking at the list that we have here, looks like there's some, uh, we've got George still playing The Last of Us Part 2. I'll just spoil that right now. Uh, and then the rest of us have kind of been playing uh, games that I don't know a lot about each. Well, I guess Adam's also still been playing Valky Profile. So it looks like we're kind of all in the middle of either finishing up Backlog or uh, working on other games that have released recently. So let's just start with George. You had talked a little bit about The Last of Us Part Two last week. I think you had just finished it uh, one time through very quickly. So now that you've had an additional week to, uh, to think about it, and I don't know if you're working on uh, trophies or what, but what have you been doing since last week? So I thought, uh, once you finish The Last of Us Part Two, you kind of want to go back and play it again to see another perspective of it. Uh, I, again, I'm not going to talk about spoilers yet. Uh, probably another week, and then I'll be like, let, "Let's let the dogs out." But for now, keeping it brief. Uh, and obviously, whenever we do, we'll clearly call it out. Like no oh, worries yeah, there. Um, you need to go through. Well, you don't need to, I guess. But I wanted to go through again and be like, "Oh, so that's that." Um, and also, I'm going for the platinum, just because when, when you buy a game's collector's edition. You kind of want to, you kind of want to make the money worth it. Get that platinum, go through as many times as possible, play on the harder difficulty, that sort of thing. It, it's still, I kind of expected my thoughts to change on it a little bit to maybe be like, yeah, this is good, but like maybe I was just like caught in the moment, calling it one of the best games ever. But it's just, it's still one of the best games ever. I, I, I just love it. Um, can't wait to. I, I guess we won't be talking about it like super in-depth here because it's not the sort of game for it but can't wait to be able to say some stuff i really want to talk about now uh, yeah but uh obviously yeah, was... just because we cover rpgs doesn't mean we exclusively play rpgs uh on this site so does the platinum for that game require you to play it on the hardest difficulty uh if i remember right there's the survivor difficulty but then there's some other difficulty modifiers from the first game how does that work so there's like a massive range of accessibility and difficulty options so you can basically just make it how hard or how easy you want to you want to have it so for the trophies there's not any difficulty ones which is kind of a shame it would have sort of been bragging rights to be like oh i beat it on the hardest you don't even need to beat it on any difficulty other than like the easiest one if you don't want to you have to like collect enough resources which will take at least two playthroughs and there's like some hidden ones that you need to look out for and obviously you need to find all the collectibles 
but it, like it's a pretty easy platinum but i think i'm gonna go back a third time and go on like the hardest difficulty because i was gonna do that for the second run and then about an hour in i sort of lost the motivation i was like i've still got quite a lot of like stuff i need to collect and on the hardest difficulty it's a lot harder to find i was like right i'll make this the collectibles run through get the platinum and then when i go back the last time i won't be stopping in every environment and like scanning everything to try and find all the little annoying things like it in the last of us like i think it serves it well to look for the collectibles because it, it builds the world a bit more but when you find like a note saying like oh this is how i died like this is more information about the wolves or the scars like that's really cool the first so all the around. collectibles are actually like in universe objects notes letters they're not just yeah. gamey like collect this egg or whatever it is well i, I say yeah for like 80 percent of them uh so that's really the only time where i would say the game kind of breaks immersion a bit like or the one that jumps out of my head most is that there's these superhero cards like dotted around like, still in good condition why anyone would just have like superhero cards like on this abandoned train beneath seattle i don't know but i guess it's it, it's for just have some fun with it a bit yeah it's Same fine like i'm not i'm not gonna judge that too harshly like would this make sense like come on yeah like now here's a more general question that, uh if uh, like do you think games and this and adam and james can chime in too should they have a trophy or achievement for beating the game on the hardest difficulty I know trophies and achievements are completely arbitrary as is, but I kind of feel like it should. Or not should, as in yeah. like must, but like I feel like it feels more appropriate to have one than to not have one. I'm not I feel certain. like for Platinums or even for 100% in achievements, I think they have like a, a thing for that now, I guess. But I would say once you've got the Platinum, you have 100% completed the game. I would say that that means you have like and everything you can to the best degree that might be taking trophies too seriously but I definitely think you should have a higher difficulty one like it, it just makes sense so going through this and knowing that i just could have done it all on very easy if i wanted to it's just like oh even the I first mean, one had trophies. yeah some people might say like well i don't want to play the game on the hardest difficulty or or they, or they might say i can't because they just don't have the um ability or they have something that doesn't allow them to uh, but then it's just like okay, then you don't get the trophy. It's arbitrary anyway. It doesn't really matter. Um, no, speaking more generally, more. I I do think that a lot of games, once you play through them on a harder difficulty, once you know like how the systems work, how the progression works, how you know, once you're just simply more skilled at the game, I think a lot of times I'll play a game on a hard difficulty, and I'll end up coming back feeling better about how the game's designed, or I'll end up liking the game more. Very rarely do I play a game on harder on a harder difficulty, and I'm like, okay, now all of a sudden I have a lesser opinion of the game because of something. At worst, I think the harder difficulty is like poorly implemented. That's oh, okay, then then I just play on normal. But yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, there's a I, I've talked about it for pretty famous example of that in Hearts Three, the first playthrough yeah, normal, there you go. but critical like completely changes the game so much better i'd say uh, if you enjoy a game enough you should go back and try it on harder you might you might like it even more i do think accessibility is a valid argument though for not locking trophies behind difficulties 
like obviously every game's different. Like let's say a turn-based RPG, like if even if you have a physical disability, if it's turn-based, that generally isn't going to impact whether or not you're going to be able to do those higher difficulties. But for something like a shooter, then that's obviously something you'd want to consider. Um, I'm going to be cheeky and say, yeah, we should lock uh, some trophies behind the hardest difficulty, but then uh, pull in your automata and make it so you can just buy them with in-game currency. Well, there you go. That's the most uh, that's the most straightforward example of how, how arbitrary they are. Right? When they like, oh, just buy them and you can't tell whether or not you did or actually legitimately earned them. Uh, don't tell anyone, but I did just buy all of them for near. So I have, a, I have all, every Steam achievement on that. <laughs> and another game, you mentioned Kingdom Hearts. I also think Final Fantasy VII Remake, when I played that through again on hard, my opinion of it uh, improved because you can't just ignore certain factors where you just brute force your way through it. You might be able to, to beat, for example, the Hell House without understanding how that fight works on normal. But then on hard, you actually be like, okay, what is the game telling me? What do I have to use to actually you know overcome this? Well, I just feel like that uh, when I play a game on hard difficulty and I actually have to understand to a greater extent what I'm playing, I end up feeling you know more positively about it. Yeah, I um, definitely agree with that. Like, um, when I played through the Utoeda Numono series last year, well, obviously the second and third game because Prelude didn't come out until just a few months ago, um, I played Mask of Deception on normal. And I was just okay with the combat and whatnot. I played it for the VN aspects, basically. But uh, when I got to Mask of Truth, and one of the things that those two games let you do is you can actually transfer over some, like, equipment for your units from the second game if you have clear data for it when you're loading up the third game. So since I had that extra stuff, I figured, you know what, I might as well try it hard. And... I ended up really enjoying the gameplay to the extent that I did not expect it when I was going through Mask of Truth, where, like, uh, whenever I talk about those games now, it's usually like, well, I came for the VN story, and I still stick, stuck around for that, but honestly, the main reason I was enjoying Mask of Truth as much as I did and why I recommend the series so highly is that, surprisingly enough, like, especially on the harder difficulty, it's a very, very good, like, tactical RPG in its own right. Uh, personally, even just divorced from the, from the trophy aspect of things or whatever, yeah, we I think one, of, yeah, one of my, just one of the best feelings in playing games is like overcoming a really tough challenge or boss. So I oftentimes do play games on like the harder difficulties just because I personally, like, yes, it's, it can be frustrating in the moment sometimes if there's something that's tough or you're struggling a bit or just a high level of resistance or even if the game throws some inconvenient things at you. But when you kind of, like you've been saying, kind of figure things out, you learn how the game is designed and kind of it forces you to kind of know your way around the mechanics and things. And when you actually overcome all that and defeat a boss or whatever, like that kind of moment that feeling is honestly one of my favorites in video, in playing games. Like, yes, I beat that tough thing, you know. And you had a hand everything in it. You, weren't, you didn't just me. luck through it. Right. So, like, personally, I really appreciate that. Um, I'll do a shout-out for, like, one of my favorite RPGs is The Last Remnant. And that game has some really tough bosses. And just kind of when you finally figure out a way to overcome the challenge and beat them, 
that's just, it's just I love that feeling personally. It's always good to be inconvenienced just slightly, not too much, obviously, but just enough to, to have to work your way through it. So George, back to the last of us. Uh, here's a, here's a loaded question. Uh, how, how do you think the game's too long at any point? Ooh, uh, <laughs> um, some would say no, some would say yeah, but I would say no, I don't think it is. I think for what it achieves, I talked about this last time, where certain points I just didn't want to keep playing, it, take, it takes work to get there, it isn't instant, it's not like, okay, I understand these characters perfectly. It takes the time it takes purposefully. Like it, it, it needed that length. I think in the first playthrough, you're like, there are bits where you go, okay, like I, I kind of want to get to the next story beat. I think that that speaks to how good the story is, rather than the game being badly paced. I, I think it's perspective, though. I, I see the. It took me 22 hours, and I see that 22 hours is completely worth it. Not a minute I wasn't hooked whereas i would look at a game like uh i haven't finished it yet in fact it's like far into my backlog but i look at the 100 hours it might take for xenoblade as like scary for talking about well, xenoblade's actually an interesting example because there is a pretty commonly uh criticized area in like the just just into the back half of the game where you're kind of in the uh, samey kind of dungeon area for a good chunk without a ton of story. And a lot of people say the game drags there. Uh, it's when you end up on Makana, speaking generally. But I actually kind of like... I don't think it's a problem for a game to go into a section that's a little bit more long-tailed, a little bit more grueling, if that's like the intent of the area where you're... Like in, in the Xenoblade example, since I can't speak to The Last of Us... The Makanis is like this foreign entity that you're you're kind of the intruders there. So when the game kind of slows down and some would say bogs down, I don't really think of it that critically, though I do see where they're coming from because the, the first half of the game has this very clearly deliberate pace that feels pretty, you know, genuine like any like most JRPGs, but then it slows down in the back half. But I kind of feel like it fits the theme of where the game is at that point. So I see the argument for for people saying that, oh, in this specific example, the game is too long, but I also kind of think that I'm okay with it. I think talking about game length is is a really, really interesting discussion that obviously has now been made a bit bit of a joke or a bit controversial. But like, I, I think it really does depend not only on the person, but on the game. So any Kingdom Hearts game I play like 25 30 hours i don't feel that time at all that time that time doesn't exist like i, I never keep a, a track of it i never notice how long it's been then a recent game i played uh man eater i think i played like four or five hours of and, and i was enjoying it but it felt long like it felt like i've been playing it a lot longer because it's it it just didn't like pressure me so, so it wasn't engaging uh, moment to moment yeah I, I don't think it's like a i don't think you can say video games are too long uh, as a blanket statement true yeah i think it's definitely dependent uh this is a specific example but one one game that i played last year and the year before i suppose um was pathfinder kingmaker which is this isometric computer quote-unquote rpg and it's a very long game it's, it takes like 150 hours to beat but i think it's well paced so it's like is that game too long i would say no 
but obviously someone I, else might have played it and say yes. <laughs> I have two things. One, from what I've heard about Pathfinder, which I haven't played, is I've been told it sort of feels like it's almost like a game and its sequel in one game. Like there's multiple story arcs like yes. within the game. That's how it is. So, you know, it, that it could be really well paced the whole way through. It's just that there's a lot of it. So if you're talking about length as in just, I want to complete this game and move it off my backlog, then yes, it's long. But if you're talking about like length as in, you know, how how much time does it give to the story elements or the mechanics that it has, it might be really well done. It's just that it has a lot of story elements or mechanics. So it's actually kind of interesting. I see some people talking about this topic and they're maybe only focused on story. Like, uh, you know, they want the story to be said in a certain amount of time or they don't want a whole lot of space in between different story beats and things. But I do think there's also a mechanical element to this as well, especially if you're talking RPGs in terms of like systems progressions and uh, things like that. Once a game's mechanics start to become maybe stale or rote, then that could or you could argue this game is too long or maybe hasn't done enough to to keep these engaging for this runtime. Well, that's so a I good think point because a mechanical okay. element and a story element to game pacing and length. Because like I I often find that my favorite games I'm able to jump in play for an hour or two not progress the story and still have a wonderful time. The most two recent examples would be like jump in on Xenoblade, only do like quests or leveling or, or play with different characters or, or do that a new like arena time challenges and not progress the story. And then my play time has gone up by two or three hours. Did I just all of a sudden make the game longer in terms of like how long it takes to beat? Well, everything I did was optional or like Fantasy Star Online, it's, you know, or any game that has like those online monster hunter base where the story is not the prim primary focus. How long is that game? Well, that's a very hard thing to nail down when it's so non nonlinear in that, in that respect. So a lot of times when people say a game is too long or, or, or it's not too long, it's only even a specific type of game that they're talking about in the first place where it has a clear, deliberate linear pacing that you can't really deviate from which I guess The Last of Us would fall under uh, based on my having played the first game, but not the second. I will play the second game at some point so that I can stop with that qualifier. I just got to find the time. would definitely recommend do, it. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other like final thoughts, final non-spoiler week two <laughs> thoughts on Last of Us Part 2? I, I guess just to, to quickly stray away from all of the talks about the story, no one talks enough about like how satisfying the gameplay is. That is what I'm enjoying even more this time around because I'm not, not, I know how long the game is going to be. I'm not worried about being spoiled or anything like that. So I am just kind of messing with the mechanics a bit more. It's not, like it's not like completely freeform or anything like that, but it just feels really good. These movements. And the the ability to jump, I know people have made fun of that and been like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, it actually really is a big deal to be able to move around the environment. Like, I tried to go back to the first game. just to, I, I was, It was more just to watch a few cutscenes and just to briefly look over it. But then I, I just found it really difficult to play now. And I think that's, that is definitely a sign of a good sequel if it makes the first yeah. one seem 
really hard by comparison, then you know you've like added some stuff that clearly maybe should have been in the first one. Uh, Which one do you like better? One or two? <laughs> That's tough. Um, um, let me jump in. I have heard many people say, and again, I haven't played it either, but I've heard many people say that like Last of Us 2 completes Last of Us 1, or it maybe adds enough to put the ending of Last of Us 1 in like, maybe not a different light, but to kind of make it, I guess, make it complete is the, the way I've heard it said. So do you feel that's true? I mean, obviously, yeah, staying completely. vague. I, I think it depends on what sort of person you are, because if you can see a lot of people, they aren't happy about it. They're like, we demand that you rewrite this. But it, to me, it felt like the team at Naughty Dog, when they finished the first one, it almost felt like they knew exactly what they were going to do with the second one. I doubt that's true. Let's yeah, even if they didn't, it, the fact that, that that's how it came across shows that it was well yeah. made. I don't really... I would love for them to do like a PS5 semi-remake of the first one. Just mash them together. Then you'd have like this... Oh, that'd be incredible. So, <laughs> so I, I don't think I can really choose a favorite yet because like I said last time, Last of Us is kind of, has kind of a special place in my heart for me. Uh, just Just in terms of coming around to what games could really do like that i guess that would almost be the start of it uh so beating that is going to be hard but on, on a technical technically yes i would say part two is better than part one basically whether it stands the test of time which i think which i hope it will right it's it's always hard to predict where sentiment will fall like after 12 months yeah So Adam, uh, you also continue just playing the same game you talked about last week in Valky Profile. So I guess just kind of a similar tack that we took with The Last of Us. Like, what? Are, any other like week two thoughts as you have? Have you finished the game now, or what have you been doing? Yeah, I have, and I do have one specific thing I want to talk about that's actually kind of interesting. I think. So yeah, I finished Valkyrie Profile. It took me just a little bit over a week to beat it. Uh, this was my second time through the game, but one thing that I find really interesting on a replay. So Valkyrie Profile, it has this original game for PlayStation, and then it has a prequel on PlayStation 2, which is called Valkyrie Profile Selmeria. And um, I actually feel like, so Valkyrie Profile, playing it through a second time after playing the prequel, it's the type of prequel sequel setup here, or prequel predecessor setup, where it was either really well thought out ahead of time how they wanted the prequel to lead into the original or that they just happened to tease it and build on up on top of it really well so it feels pretty congruent so in the ending sections of the original valkyrie profile when you are getting into like the final boss and the final levels and things like that there are a lot of story elements that kind of come and go relatively they kind of come at you relatively quickly where they kind of drop all this knowledge on you. I'm going to go ahead and spoil this because this game is 20 years old. But you learn about the uh, the uh, the nature of the Valkyries, where there's three of them, and they kind of inherit the same body in a way, and only one can be active at any one time. And at the end of the game, there's a moment where Leneth, your main character Valkyrie, is taken over by Hrist, and then you go to a one of the you go to a the castle of a vampire named Brahms, and he has a he has Silmaria soul 
one of the other Valkyries kind of trapped there. And there's not to get into any more specifics than that, but it kind of all comes at you pretty quickly um, and doesn't really let anything settle or, uh, for, for any length of time. But all that stuff with Hrist, with Brahms, with Silmaria, obviously based on the name with that castle, it's all directly uh, referencing events in the prequel where you actually play as Silmaria and go to Brahms castle and Hrist is there as well and everything. And it just, it kind of clicks a lot more strongly when I'm replaying this a second time. Like, Oh, I remember all this from that prequel game that came out later. And it's just kind of interesting how well it kind of fits in now. It doesn't feel, it almost doesn't feel like extraneous or just kind of loosely connected. It's like all this stuff directly fits into the stuff that they're talking about here. And what's actually kind of interesting is a lot of those plot elements aren't really directly relevant to the original game storyline. They just kind of pop in and out in this ending section here. So it was just kind of really interesting to see it a second time with that additional context. Because of course I hadn't, I hadn't, I played it in release order. I didn't play the prequel first, the first time I played the original. So I just found that really interesting. Uh, to see it the second time through. It, it's kind of like the contrapositive of what George was talking about, where he said the sequel to this game was so well made that it felt like deliberately planned. Or in your case, it's like the prequel was so well teased and flow so well that you start to guess like how much of this did they actually have like scoped out? Or if they didn't, they still nailed it. Yeah, it's, of... it's one of those things that's impossible to know. Like, did they have this actually planned out? Or did they kind of deliberately tease a few things at the time thinking, oh, we'll just follow up on this later. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but we'll just do that later. And then they, when they did get around to following up on it, they, they were, they were skilled enough to have it mesh as well as it does. Uh, and I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, but at the very end of Valkyrie profile, at the end of the credits, you're actually, it actually does leave with what is most out outwardly a tease where Brahms, who is a vampire, who is kind of a main character in the prequel, is basically talking to himself, and he's kind of like, the last line in the game is literally like, let's go, Silmaria. And the second game in the series, the prequel, is literally called Valkyrie Profile Silmaria. So that tells me they maybe had some indication of what they were wanting to do. But I still think, generally speaking, you should pl play games in, in release order, you know, that just makes the most logical sense most of the time. But Valkyrie Profile, I just found that interesting the second time through after playing the prequel. It just kind of, it clicks better in ways. I can't really think of a game that does that. Like, I, I the first thought that went through my head when you were talking about that was the sort of haphazard attempt that Kingdom Hearts does to link everything together. Where it's like, oh, remember those memory pods? Well, remember those, that, like, texture in Kingdom Hearts 1, or it turns out it was a memory pod they use in Dark Road, like, look forward to that. So the, like the, the example that I think of is uh, Yakuza, where a lot of people say it's 100% fine to play Zero first. But the thing is, that the yeah. thing that Yakuza does that it seems like Valkyrie Profile doesn't is that Zero is separated by, like, 20 years or whatever from the events of the rest of the games. So, because of the events I, of the first game. I should mention that Valkyrie Profile is actually the prequel set 200 years before, but it, time doesn't really matter <laughs> Never mind. in Valkyrie Profile universe. Um, 
In Kingdom Hearts, the one prequel example that I think is almost emblematic of the worst sort of prequel tease connection is uh, where it's almost meaningless. In the, uh, what was it? The, oh God, Kingdom Hearts titles. Kingdom Hearts 0.2, like prequel teaser thing. Yeah. Remember that with Aqua? Oh, I think I know what you're on about now. At Me the too. End of that, at the end of that, there's a moment where it's like, do you remember the ending of of Kingdom Hearts? Where you see Mickey behind the door? Turns out Aqua was just off screen right there at that time. You would never have known it. But she was right there too, and I think that is so kind of dumb, pointless. Like I can, I can one up you there. Even <laughs> better is that it was like it took zero point two to explain why Mickey didn't have his shirt. Sure. <laughs> oh yeah, he, yeah. he just, gets just, like ripped off by darkness or whatever. <laughs> like literally thirty seconds before. Jeez. Oh god. There's also um, there's also a Crisis Core. Where it's like, did you know X, Y, and Z were also like right around that Nibblon reactor at the same oh, time? Actually, like the reason why Sephiroth went nuts is because Genesis was egging him on. <laughs> can't wait to see him in uh, remake two. So, any other uh, thoughts on Valkyrie Profile? I guess the only last thought I have is the. So I've I've stated before I, I really like the game. One thing that I'm maybe just a little bit not so hot on is that the ending is incredibly like brief and short which is not bad in its own you know like in a vacuum but it kind of like you beat the final boss of the game you finally overcome him and then literally like 15 seconds later you're in the credits there's just like a really quick ending scene where two characters say like two lines and then that's the end and it's, it's it almost feels like like wow that's it what, what about what about all the like it just feels like not there should have been maybe just a little bit more resolution, but not sufficient. But you know, endings are kind. Of, I kind of feel sometimes endings are just sort of throwaway anyway, like whatever. But yeah, it just it just kind of surprised me how brief it is. Like, oh, that's the end. What do you think of Covenant of the Plume? I think it's a really solid strategy RPG. Um, it's got. I I kind of forget some of the plot elements of that one because they're not as connected to the other two. But I remember it has some really sad uh, and tragic and poignant storylines, just like the other games. So, oh, I was actually surprised that you're relatively positive on it. That's actually the only one I've played, so don't judge me. I the, the one thing I most remember about Covenant is that it starts off and it feels like we were talking about difficulty earlier. The early game of that feels really hard. And it, it, it's one of those things that just kind of weird early game balance where you kind of have to, you kind of have to just, what's the word, take it easy or you got to be very, very careful the first like a couple of hours before things really start to settle in and kind of level off a bit. But yeah. So James, you've got two games here that I don't know anything about. So I'll just let you uh, go into which one you want to talk about first. I'm going to talk about uh, Time Travelers. So, um, not sure if you guys have been checking out my Twitter recently, but a few days ago, I, well, I guess actually more like a week ago, I announced that I joined the fan translation project for Time Travelers, which is a visual novel that's in the. So, you guys know 428 Shibuya Scramble, right? Um, yep. 
Josh reviewed it for us. We gave it, I think we gave it a 10. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, it deserves it. It's a fantastic visual novel with a really unique art style and an interesting set of mechanics. Uh, had this thing called the time block system where you basically follow multiple characters and each of like the actions that you take as these characters impacts other characters in the same time block. And so the whole objective of the game is make the right decisions that every single character makes it out alive to the next time slot. And like each chapter is kind of like those time slots. Um, well, 428 is actually not the only game in its universe. Uh, there's a pseudo trilogy of uh, game, uh, visual novels that take place within the same expanded universe sort of deal. There's Machi, which hasn't been translated. There's 428, and then there's Time Travelers. Uh, Time Travelers came out on 3DS Vita and PSP in like 2012. And back then, visual novels weren't nearly as uh, prevalent in the West as they are now. So it just never came over, especially since, which makes sense because 428 didn't come over until, was it 2018 or 2019? Either way, it wasn't until well, like way good. after the original like uh, Wii release. So it makes sense. Um, I guess I'll talk about the game a bit some. So it shares the same time block system. So if you've played 428, you generally understand how the game flow is, where you're hopping between different characters and you're trying to figure out what to do in order to avoid bad endings and whatnot. Uh, it doesn't have the real-life photography art style to it, but the game itself is more akin to something like, I'd say, a Telltale game, where most of the uh, narrative is actually driven through cinematic, like, I guess kind of cutscenes, and then every now and then there will be these things called plain cinema events where it basically asks you to do a few QTEs, kind of like in Telltale games. So you, you're kind of, it's kind of like a mix between the 428 style and the more Western like uh, narrative game style that people are probably more uh, familiar with uh, in the, on the side of the, the world. Um, it's pretty good. Um, I guess. The interesting thing to talk about is just, well, what goes into, like, working on a fan translation and whatnot. Yeah. So I joined as, I joined as an editor, and uh, I, if, you've, if um, people listening have uh, read my uh, interview with the Dragon Quest uh, Rocket Slime 3DS uh, fan translation developers, obviously there's so many different factors that you have to account for when you're creating a fan translation. Least of all, not least of all being the fact that, well, if you're not the actual developer, you don't have direct access to the code. So if you need to make changes to the code, that means that you have to like decompile the game's executable and figure out how to insert text if it's not, if it doesn't already support Roman characters or if it doesn't have like a good font for those for that um, character set. If you need to make any changes to the way that line breaks are done, if you need to figure out if you can expand or if you're stuck with a certain character limit. So one of the things already I've been dealing with is that, so the main platform that the fan translation is being developed on is for 3DS first. The eventual plan is to um, get it working on Vita as well, but the first uh, platform we're focusing on is 3DS and PSP owners, well, what are you gonna do? Uh, but obviously the 3DS has a pretty low resolution, which means that you're kind of limited in the, in the amount of text that you can have on a screen, which um, 
probably was more of an issue with the uh, original Japanese release because, well, Japanese characters, you want to have a certain amount of fidelity so you can actually tell what those uh, more complex kanji are. And, but, uh, yeah, it's been interesting because there's, um, like, like a ton of visual novels, there's, like, tips that you can, like, read through that gives you more information about the world. It's not like in the... Uh, 428 where you actually choose those specific uh, tips and make decisions based off of specific ones but it's really just more information about the world and most of the time it's fine but there's some tips that have like media embedded on them like they have a video or there's like a 3d model or there's just a image that you can expand and look at and because of the way that's um showcased on the 3ds that means that at least for like half of those tip screens where there's media attached were very very limited in what sort of texts and how long the lines can be for like half of the text box because we basically have like half or less than half of the usual um line size that we have available to us in other lines so i haven't played either of these games just simply because i don't haven't played a lot of visual novels but i did see you tweet about this and i also obviously have followed four tip 428 to the extent that our website covered it. And I will just say, based on what I saw for both those games, I would not have guessed that they were tethered together really in any way, because they don't seem to have any sort of similar visual identity. Because 428 uses a lot of that real world imagery, almost like a like a drama, like a J drama, is that the right term? Where where yeah. what you share what you shared for uh time travelers looked more anime for the lack of a more specific term, but more more specifically uh, drawn with its art style. Yeah. Uh, one thing to consider is that, and this is um, even uh, weirder, is that the game, well, Time Travelers was published by um, Level 5 in Japan, and I don't think that 428 was um, published by them. It was initially published by Sega. So it's two different publishers, even though the games are in the same universe. And they even share some characters, vaguely. Like, uh, the, it, even if you haven't played Fortnite, you've probably seen, like, the cat mascot character and whatnot. And, you, like, even though it's a different person in that cat costume in Time Travelers, you do see that, like, same outfit in Time Travelers in some instances. And then there are, like, for example... In some of the tips, it even outright references the 428 incident and stuff like that. So they are very much connected, and they are canon to each other, which makes it all the weirder, because it's two separate publishers, they look incredibly different, and like, really the thing that's the closest between the two is that they both have time block system. So not something that would be immediately obvious based on cursory glance that I've given it. Yeah, you don't. It's like not like you need to play the other games in the series before you play Time Travelers. It's just like if you have played them, you'll catch all these nods to the previous games. So um, fan translations, the or or fan mods in general, tend to incubate for a long time. The two that I think of are obviously the Trails from Zero work, and then also like the Restoration mod for Sith Lords. Uh, Knights of the Republic 2. Basically, it just seems like obviously when you're working on this in your free time uh, or in your spare time, you can't dedicate, you know, 40 hours a week to it. 
so is this is this project starting from ground zero or has it already been like incubating for a while like what's the status just kind of more logistically there it's been incubating for a while so essentially how i got involved with it is that a, a friend of mine uh, dm'd me on discord a few weeks ago saying hey would you be interested in joining this fan translation project and i said what game is it they told me it was time travelers and they mentioned it had it was like related to 428 so i was interested um and so the fan translation project itself has been been going on since 2017 which a lot of that was just getting um, getting people together getting set up and of course like figuring out how you can even get text insertion properly working so i'd say that for this project the hardest parts have probably already been done I can't give any sort of like definitive answer for when the translation will be finished or whatnot, but um, the base translation for almost everything in the game is done. But the problem is, is that um, I, there was a YouTube Let's Play of the game that was translated over, kind of like how uh, The Greatest Attorney was first, like, people did a translation of a playthrough for that and the set and the sequel on YouTube. But the translation for Time Travelers isn't very good. So we've been taking that as a base, and then what's what we're doing is, is that we have people translating the tips, and then we have people doing a kind of not necessarily a retranslation, but a translation check of the original base translation. And then once they are done with that, then I can go in and edit the translation myself and make sure it flows better and make sure that the terminology is all correct with what we've decided we're going to go with for the game. And the good news is, is that four two well four like even four two eight was a pretty small visual novel by like all standards. Like I'd say it was like 20 to 30 hours long, which is for a visual novel. That's pretty short, but um, Time Travelers is only like 10 to 15 hours long. So I'd say that once things get going, like I, I can't, again, I can't say when it'll be done, but I feel like it's pretty safe to say that this won't be taking too, too much longer, assuming that things stay at the same pace that they've uh, been since I've popped on. It's been, it's kind of hard to extrapolate based on, oh, it started in 2017, you're X percent done now, where does, where does that line end up? Because a lot of what's been happening up to this point has more been framework and organization of the exactly. actual project. That makes sense. The one thing that's going to be a real challenge is, um, like I said, many of the scenes are almost... I wouldn't say anime because it's more like, a, again, it's more like a telltale thing where things are kind of moving on its own. Uh, what that does mean is that if there's an action sequence where the text is auto advancing and it's very, very quickly, like right as the text like fills in, it's like the next line. That can be a problem when you're trying to translate things because, well, obviously some pieces of dialogue you're going to, um, Japanese is going to get a lot more information across quickly than the equivalent English text. So that's going to be a challenge to, to make sure that everything flows well enough that people actually have enough time to read the text as we're going through the game. So, and, yeah. and, and then working within the framework of what your quote unquote programming allows you to do 
in terms of like the example that I think of is when in even in official translations where, for instance, if a game has battles like most RPGs do and voice line, let's say a game is only in spoken Japanese, but has English subtitles, but they're not subtitled in battle or whatever, simply because in the original Japanese version of the game, there was no programming framework for there to ever be subtitles in battles. So you can't just insert English into nothing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do believe that we can insert subtitles into voice scenes that didn't originally have subtitles. So that's one good thing. Oh, that's good. So, Well, I just brought that example up. It's just like an example of not only do you have this difficult task of just localizing the thing, but you also have these constraints, which might be an inconvenience to doing that. Yeah, and I also know that depending on the project and localization team and company and whatever, a bunch of things... Oftentimes, like official localizations, they actually have to basically ship their, you know, they have to send the code or the the localization text to the actual developers back in Japan, and they have to insert it back into the game for them, and then they have, they get the they get the that the game basically build back and make sure all the text is flowing right and isn't breaking any boundaries or whatever. And then if they have to tweak something, they have to go they have to basically send it back to Japan so they can program it in again, and that's basically. Not ideal, as you can imagine, yeah. how it works, but that's um, often how it does work. As a tangent, uh, just to anyone listening, this is why, um, what Adam just said is the reason why I've always looked at those claims that NIS America like would insert bugs into their like localizations. And I've thought, okay, obviously you have no idea about how localization actually works. Because, like, I've seen people say, oh, well, this old co- oh, this old Gus game had horrible bugs that obviously NIS America inserted. It's like, guys, like, even after NIS America stopped having access to, like, actually translating the uh, Gus titles, there were still plenty of bugs in some of those Atelier games directly after they lost the reins to the series. And even, like, okay, yeah, NIS America makes a translation, but that's basically just the text. They don't insert it. If issues pop up because of the text being inserted, that's on the development team for how they inserted it and for not properly bug testing it themselves. Like a certain degree of responsibility does fall on NISA if they uh, do QA in house and they look for issues and like they don't catch it, but they don't share the lion's share of the blame. It most of it falls on the original developers when bugs get added in localization. Yeah, you could say like, well, they should do their due diligence and make sure what they're giving to Japan will work. Like they're not asking NIS uh, to insert 800 characters into a single text box or something like that. But I guess that's what I'm getting at is that it's you can't just blame one side of the pond or another, especially if they have to work collaboratively like that in terms of literally shipping the game back and forth with updates to the text. Not to mention that unlike with the fan project where there are no deadlines, obviously if you're trying to sell a commercial product, well, any back and forth between Japan and the West is obviously going to take time because, well, first you have to send it over in North Communication, then there's the lagging period and whatnot. And keep in mind that these companies don't just solely exist to work on the localization. They're still developing games themselves in-house. And they have their own things they need to worry about. So 
there's always going to be that lag time and you have to consider that if you're dealing on like if you're dealing with translations as a business it's like you ideally you want to of while you do want to have a healthy communication between the japan side and the western side you want to make sure that that communication is what's the best way to put it i guess um efficient <laughs> i've i've worked i obviously have not worked in a localization capacity but just i know how difficult it is to leave a pass down for someone working second shift within the same building let alone across the the, the globe yeah so i can i can you know at least glean the difficulties that stem from that just logistically but it is cool to hear you be able to talk about it so that in a vicarious way i'm a little bit more informed about how the process works and it'll be interesting to hear over the next i don't know year a couple of years about how progress how it progresses yeah it's a very interesting situation but again there's not too much i can talk about what i've talked about is basically stuff that's like more obvious for i'd say a wider variety of projects so nothing really specific about ours except for the fact well we can insert text lines to like voice areas that weren't originally subtitled before which is good but yeah anyways um yeah so it's been interesting so far uh the other game i've been playing this week was actually uh, civilization beyond earth which was the spin-off slash it's one of those games where it's a spin-off but it was also kind of billed as it, the next game like main game in the series you know how those work out sometimes mm. um I'm not sure if any of you guys play Civ. Yeah, I mean, I play. I played like a couple games of Civ Five. It was fine. It just, I don't know, not something I would do a ton in my spare time. I'll be honest. This is, the, this is Civ, like the uh, sort of like not world building, but you build up your own. The best way I can describe it is Civilization is essentially a beefed up board game that's played on computers. I didn't know they did a. A space sort of version of that. I must have completely missed that. It's not my sort of game, but like usually, yeah, I... it's reactions. Um, oh. And I can definitely see what they're talking about. Just like on the one like um, game I played with my friends. So what I actually did is that a few of my friends, like uh, f the four of us, uh, did a multiplayer co-op match where we set the AI to the hardest difficulty, and we were one team. The AI was the other, and we kind of just did a playthrough of that. Um, it's kind of hard to talk about what's specifically different about this game without kind of explaining what, how things worked in like say Civ Five, since that was the directly preceding game before this one came out. But essentially, the main difference here is that it takes place on a different planet, and there's three main stat, um, three main like uh, alignment stats that you that depending on which research you do and what you and what sort of um, decisions you make during randomly generated like events on the map you have these levels increase and it impacts how both um other like countries on the map foresee you as well as um what your units will end up uh, evolving into as they get promotions so it's kind of interesting there in the sense that like depending on your alignment your units have slightly different stats and there's like it's never really some anything super super different. It's just like most of the time, like damage increase is going to be the same. You're going to have like 
very similar like buffs but there's going to be like one or two things that's kind of different if you went like say purity over say harmony or something like that uh the one problem is is that the ai is very weird in the sense that every now and then they'll make comments on what your uh country is doing in regards to like bettering like humanity's future on this new planet so they'll like comment if you've been doing well with food production they'll comment if you've been doing well with um relation like diplomatic relations which i guess is more standard to the series but for whatever reason the ai is super aggressive like in like even more so than than other games in the series and maybe that was because of the hardest difficulty but like reading up about it apparently it was a uh, complaint that people had when this game was still like new in the sense that they'll start attacking you like at the drop of a hat so like halfway through the game like we were trying to like build up our stuff before we actually would engage with them and then like just out of nowhere all four of them <laughs> like declare war on us and we just had to be like oh well i guess it's time <laughs> so. i haven't played a lot of games like this but uh i have played a few more lighter rts's like age empire starcraft things like that and then i have watched a lot of playthroughs of stellaris not that that makes me an expert um one reason i think that these types of games don't gel with me is that i hate i i don't i don't work well with having to rebound from a from being attacked where like if i build up some sort of economic uh, gear, something something that's at the core of my civilization or my my kingdom or whatever, and then a I lose a building or a star base or whatever it is. Like, oh, I don't want to build it back. I give up. Throw in the towel or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm the exact same. I'd say that that's one of the things that's nice about doing like doing it multiplayer like uh, we did, because if one of us it has to rebuild from a war, well, the rest of us can be like, okay, we'll just make a blockade so that the enemy can't come by and like mess with you anymore i do like the idea of having i've always played these games single player pretty much with maybe a couple like age of empires 2 multiplayer stuff way way back um which i did put in like 100 hours into that definitive edition last year but anyways uh i know i know rts and grand strategy isn't quite the same genre but they're they occupy a similar space uh but the idea of having multiple players like allow them to like specialize into like what because i feel like when i play these games single player i would be inclined to try to be like super well-rounded like i'd work on my tech or i'd work on my research and then i'd also work on my, like my military strength or, or armies or whatever where with multiple Which players i feel like you could specialize go ahead yeah what i was gonna say is that one of the main problems i'd say with some of these games is that sometimes you can't really try and be perfectly well-rounded because being well-rounded is one thing, but there's very specific play styles that are based around the idea of specializing in one sort of thing, which um, obviously you don't want to completely ignore everything, but for these types of games, it definitely, at least from my experience, you need to like make a decision and kind of try to stick it, stick with it and figure out how to make it work. Yeah, and like jack of all trades, master of none, and then you're, you don't have any single spear tip that's strong enough to overcome whatever the, the victory conditions are. Yep. So did you just do the couple games, or do you think you'll be playing this more going forward? Or Because these are the uh, sorts of games where it's like they, they take a long time to play, 
they're, they're a time investment, I, get, I suppose. At least that's my inclination, having watched and dabbled in very briefly. I don't know. We might start playing it some more. Like, um, we definitely want to at least give it another try or so. But there's, like, a couple of games that we have that we can go back to for, like, a four-person, like, a group or whatnot. Like, obviously, Monster Hunter. Um, finally, the rest of the group is getting back into Final Fantasy because, like, one of the guys was still in the uh, A Realm Reborn patch quest, and he's starting to, to like, bum-rush them so he can get to Heaven's Word so, so the other two can start playing again because the one dude that was still in uh, A Realm Reborn, I'm not sure if you guys, like, growing up ever had those, like, friends that if you were playing a multiplayer game with them, they would want to be on the same exact, like, progression as you as they're going forward. They don't want to play if, if you're, like, not at the same area. So like I've um, kind of had that. Yeah. So like the one uh, the one guy um he's like that generally. He's insisted that it won't be a problem with this one, but the other two um in the group were like, "Yeah, no, we're we're, we're not going to deal with that. We're just going to wait for you." And they didn't tell me to wait up because I started playing Final Fantasy again before they did, and they were like and I was like, "Look, you, you can tell me to stop. I'm not going to stop." <laughs> <laughs> I've so, I've yeah. actually kind of been in both positions where like sometimes if you're ahead of the other player, for me for my example here it's Monster Hunter, where you kind of want to be like yeah I want to play with you I'm like I want to carry you along but then like I've also been in a position where it's like I don't want to be carried like I'd rather just play by myself if that's if that's how it's gonna be so I've kind of seen it from both sides. Some of my favorite uh, online game experiences though when I'd match make just any game I can't think of a specific one that's like this old dragon ball game you'd match make and you'd be having a really tough time with this boss and then you just get this person come in who's clearly completed it like five times and is way ahead of you and they just do it for you basically those are some of my favorite online moments i i, I think there's a benefit to having some people ahead it is always kind of cool to see like the person that you uh aspire to be in 50 <laughs> hours or whatever like I, I'm walking around the ship in Fantasy Star Online too, and there's a guy like decked out in like super ornate, gaudy like wings and backpack or whatever. I'm like, I'm gonna be that guy. Just give me a hundred hours. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm the last one to go, I've been actually playing a game that released last year, an, an indie game called Fell Seal Arbiter's Mark. If Bug Fables is basically three people saying, I want to play another Paper Mario type game, so we're going to make one. Fell Seal is basically two people saying, I want to play another game like Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, so we're going to make one. So it pretty much is, imagine, imagine making a game unashamedly in the footprints of Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, and that's what Fell Seal Arbiter's Mark is. And then the reason why I'm playing it again this year is because they just released uh, an expansion pack for it. But it's not the typical sort of expansion pack, like where it's like an epilogue or a new chapter. It kind of threads throughout the, the existing game. So it's basically intended to play through the game again, only now with new updates in terms of new classes, new mods. It's almost like a, a gold edition of the game where it's it's not like... It's more parallel to the original release rather than sequential. And Adam, you've been watching me play this a little bit, so you can chime in if you have any comments. But um, there haven't been, like, obviously, Final Fantasy Tactics is had that War of the Lions release kind of earlier this year, or was it late last year? I don't remember. It depends on which side you're talking about. But 
it had it's kind of bogged down by a lot of the mobile sensibilities. So I'm like, you know what? I'll just play this other game that's a little bit more faithfully uh, like a console Japanese strategy RPG. And I, I know a lot of people speak really highly, of course, about Final Fantasy Tactics and less so about Tactics Advance. But there's something about Tactics Advance that I actually do really like. Um, I couldn't, I probably couldn't point to any one specific thing, but I, I just the the way that the uh, the class system works, the way that the way that the uh, one thing that Felseal I think does really well that can kind of be a bugbear for these sorts of games is that obviously as a turn-based strategy game, it's not it, it doesn't live in its brevity. Game battles can take like twenty minutes uh, in some of these style games, but in Felseal, and Adam could probably attest to this too. It's a lot of a lot of times well, now that I'm playing through at really high levels, characters' offensive capabilities kind of outpace their defensive ones. So you're sitting there and being able to one or two shot enemy units down is not uncommon. So that can be frustrating in a sense where you've got a nice, you know, you think it's a well-balanced team of like defensive characters, magic characters, you know, physical attackers. But then so does the enemy, and they're able to, if they gang up on one of your guys, they can take them out pretty easily, but so can you. So I kind of appreciate that in a strategy game like this, where sometimes it just feels like you're poking away at something with a ton of health, and it just takes forever to do anything. And that doesn't feel like it's the case here. I kind of feel like that also sort of emphasizes strategy elements, too, in a way, where since both you, and yeah, I was watching you play this for several hours, um, both you and your enemy can do a lot of damage and it doesn't take that long to like knock someone out. Uh, You can't just for your case, you can't just send out like your strongest unit and have them like, you know, out in front Landu style. Yeah. You can't have them set out like way ahead of everyone else or else they're just going to get taken out quickly. And then you're going to lose, you know, a good chunk of your offensive output. So you kind of have to actually like, I think it emphasizes having all your characters be relative glass cannons. You know, you know that you can't take that many hits, and you got to be you got to play kind of smart and defensive in terms of moving your units uh, carefully, and so that they don't get just easily wiped out. So it kind of improves. I think I think it's good for the pace of the game and just thinking about it strategically rather than just having one unit mow down everything. Yeah, so this game obviously is made by two people released last year. Uh, one, one, a couple drawbacks to the game is that one, it does kind of have a very ugly art style, just speaking generally. It's got that very mobile puppetry bobblehead sort of look. I think you do acclimate if you play it a while, but it's, it is a hard sell to show someone a screenshot and say this game is actually not that bad. I don't think super highly of it, but I do think it's generally pretty good. I forget where it was. Um, RPG Watcher somewhere, they're they're ranking like turn-based games, and they actually had Felseal as one of their top ten. Oh, like they they thought really highly of it, and I I know it's gotten some pretty decent you know impressions from it since its release last year, uh, as a Western-made t- Final Fantasy Tactics like. So, yeah, it's. It's a hard sell based on visuals alone. Um, it also is kind of bluntly written. It's it's written as so as though it's like an after school show for middle schoolers, or early high schoolers. But 
with that considered, I still do think it's a well-told story. It's just obviously not trying to be an Evelise Final Fantasy game in terms of how it presents its story. It's it's very straightforward. It's very simple dialogue. But I do think that even with those considered, it's not a bad story. It's just you kind of have to wind your your expectations down to what what would a very what would you call a quality I don't know shown in anime for for younger people be like uh, whatever the equivalent is for a Western show would be. But yeah, I think if they were to ha- try to like emulate that more old English style of tactics or something, it would have just seemed too try it's, hard. It's very, it's very easy to get wrong, which some people, when you say that, what I think of is um, Octopath Traveler, the civilization that Hanit's from, where it kind of like tries to emulate that ye old English, but it just comes out like really clunky. Or I, you might say like, well, Felseal might not do it very effectively like like i think final fantasy 12 is actually like the pinnacle of that sort of style i just i love that game at least how it presents its um its story uh from scene to scene less so overarching but i'd rather they avoid that outright than attempt it and do it poorly right exactly so uh so this game is uh i think it's it's something like 20 bucks on steam uh and then the dlc is like 11 bucks if if you want to play a game that's in the vein of Final Fantasy Tactics Advanced, mostly it's a, it's a, it's a it's a nice it's pretty typical in terms of like yeah you you pick a class you pick a subclass you have passive abilities you have a reaction ability kind of very much borrowed wholesale from those Final Fantasy Tactics games even like the class menu is the uh, the circular kind of cassette wheel of switching through the classes with their different armor sets so it, it's kind of unashamed in that in that respect. But it's, I don't know, it's, it's a solid game. I, I can't really give it accolades much higher than that. Like, if you haven't played Tactics or Tactics Advance, or even, like, um, Tactics Ogre, I would play all those games first. But if, you're, if you already have and you love this style of game and you're looking for more, this game is definitely in the same avenue. I'm actually considering playing it. I, I really like strategy RPGs, but it's been a while since I've found one that I've clicked with. It's been a few years, but I played like Summonite 6 or God Wars, which are both Japanese developed ones, and neither of them really satisfied the itch. I kind of disliked both for various reasons. So it's kind of been a while. Maybe I'll try out Felseal. One of my favorite things about these sorts of games is that obviously you start out with a couple like story-based characters, and this game does do the general thing where just like in all those other tactics games, there's like sub-events which give you unique characters which have their own unique classes, which you can then pair with um, you know the more gener- generic classes. Like for instance, you get this character who has a unique class called Bounty Hunter, which pairs really well with the generic class Gunner. But of course, if you were more creative, maybe you would pair it with something like, I don't know, like a mage or an assassin and come up with something totally unique. But I also kind of like when you have a complete generic character, you know, just just a, a pickup that you get from the guild. They start out, they have obviously no story build up, nothing. And you're just like, I want to make this character, I don't know, a Templar or, or whatever. And they don't have any of that. There's nothing behind them. They're just an avatar. They're just an avatar for stats and a class. But then over time, you kind of have like, as you as you kind of dial in what sort of role you want that person to have on the battlefield, are they going to be a tank? Are they going to be a glass cannon? Are they going to be like a summoner that sits at the back of the field and just like, you know, unleashes, you know, annihilating wide cast spells over the whole arena? 
and then like over time that you kind of develop like these fan canon is that head canon like about like who this character is where they came from the battles they've been in and you kind of do like grow this attachment over time two things first of all i remember zach basically saying this exact same thing uh in a podcast years ago i forget for what game but kind of had the same sentiment Um, but also like when i'm watching you play the game and i'm only like tangentially like getting some of the story stuff or whatever it actually is kind of amusing for me to see because like i think you have a character that's like one of your units named lucina that is like really powerful and you use a bunch and then i kind of realized like hours later like oh i don't think that character is actually like a main character like they don't talk or do anything it's just one of your units that you use all the time who is very very strong and like always doing something <laughs> so I, it almost in my head kind of feels like she's a like an actual game character even though she's not she's not a main character right lucina no no right but then so also that's kind of what you're getting at yeah and then when you're doing when you're doing cutscenes in this game and obviously they're very simple isometric like it's got that puppetry look like i said so on a on a pure technical level there's nothing impressive about it but they do do a, a few neat tricks or just a, just a few neat things that they didn't have to do where you'll be in camp or on a boat or wherever and your main characters are talking about whatever the story progression is. But then on the side, you'll see one of your generic characters driving the ship or another generic character like pitching the tent. Like they must they must just have it in the code where it's like character number six on your roster will be placed here doing this. And obviously that's kind of just cool. kind of a it's just kind of a nothing thing. It doesn't really mean anything, but it just at least you see these generic characters kind of acting as if they're more than what they actually are. It's just kind of yeah, a that, touch that, that, that they didn't have to do. And then the uh, one other thing that I like about this game is that it very faithfully does the Final Fantasy Tactics style side quests where they're not just picked out of a list. They're actually like you'll go to a you'll go to a location on the map and you'll see a zombie holding a letter and it'll be like, hey, that zombie's holding a letter. What can we do about it? We have to prevent him from coming back and see if we can get that from him. And what you have to do is, so in this game, you can revive people using Phoenix Downs, basically, if they if units on your side die. And this is a pretty typical thing where there's there's certain class, I think it's the hunter, allows you to basically poach enemies so that they can't be revived and you get the extra materials from them. So if you poach the zombie, you get his letter, and then that leads into a side quest. Or there'll also be a side quest where it's like you'll go into a guild hall and someone will say, I hear they're meeting at the cemetery tonight. And that the game won't won't put like a, a waypoint icon on the cemetery and say go here. You just have to oh I should go there. Um, it's obviously nothing too like what's the word? It's nothing too like mechanically difficult or dense. It's it's usually pretty well signposted. But I'm very just the fact that they don't like put them in a list to be checked off. It's pretty good. Sometimes I'll end up just like wandering the map. Like I'll want to walk to another region of the world. It's like a it's like a Mario Mario three style world map where there's like nodes and you move your little avatar from location to location. Sometimes you'll go to a location and when you're not expecting it, uh, you'll 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 invoke a side quest and these side quests, like I said, will lead to unique classes or unique gear things like that. Uh, it's just a well made game and it kind of does it kind of does everything reasonably well or better. I don't know if it's got like a sterling example of like what the genre should be, but it's just it's just well made. It's just a good it's a nice solid game. And sometimes you just kind of want to play one of those where it's it doesn't pretend to be more than it is. It knows what it's doing. It knows what it's emulating and it does so faithfully. And I've had a good time with it.
I mean, considering it's been literally like 10 years since the last Final Fantasy Tactics game, not counting, I guess, War for the Vision, which I guess is now what it is. It's a mobile game. Um, I'll take a indie, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics-like if it seems to do a pretty good job at it. So, and I will consider like it. I, like I said with Bug Fables, I think it's just really cool that development pipelines with engines and things like that are at a place where a team of two or three people can say, I want to play a game like this, but other people aren't making it, so, so I am. And then we get to enjoy it as well. Like that's, I think that's just overarching a, a, cool, a cool time to live in in the midst of everything else that's awful about this year or this time of the, uh, this time of the uh, 2020s. Hey, Bug Fables. Yes. Telseal is pretty good too. Not as good as Bug Fables, but it's pretty good. All right, I think that covers us for the uh, what we've been working on for this early July podcast. Uh, into the news and topics section of the show. There's not a lot in terms of article features or shoutouts, no new reviews or things like that. Obviously, we've got the uh, cyberpunk preview that Alex Donaldson put together, having played four hours uh, of the game a little over a week ago. As well as all the other recent reviews from June and May, such as Xenoblade and all the rest. So here's something that is near and dear to George's heart, I think. But we finally got some more concrete details about a certain RPG under a certain uh, IP. I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, or if I should just give you the lead-in. You know, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it. Um, so there's there's one game. I'm very excited for. Uh, I made a point of saying its name every week for a bit, and then stopped for you know, Kingdom Hearts. Reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I would happily have that too. But no, the uh, Harry Potter RPG that I've been wanting since I was a kid and mentioning for probably the past eight podcasts that we've done. Uh, it it got leaked years ago now, like I think back in 2017 or 18. And seeing that footage then, like, it was kind of without a shadow of a doubt real because it just it just looked so real and so like in development. It was just a random thing to pop up. So seeing that, I've never doubted it. Uh, as I've made clear on this, I, I've always said this is coming out. We just need confirmation. So this and, is a um a Bloomberg report just just to give yeah. some context about details on this Harry Potter RPG coming to next gen consoles in 2021. So it was uh, Jason Schreier reporting, like re- really good job as always. And the gist of it is that yes, it's happening. Uh, woohoo! So that's really good. Uh, it is a next gen console only game, which is sort of surprising. Uh, good because it means it's going to be like as powerful as it can be. But I was sort of expecting it to come to c- current gen consoles. Uh, all the more reason to own a PS5, I guess. And the the other things that were revealed is that it is Avalanche Software uh, who did the Disney Infinity games, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it's not Avalanche who did Just Cause, it's Avalanche Software. Um, and the other, Many similar the other name studios. It, I know, that, it, that, that's, just, that's just a weird one. It's like uh, Monolith and Monolith Soft, things like that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that was revealed in the article, which uh, it is a, is unfortunate, but the reality of it is that most of the 
well, not most, some of the staff members are upset and worried about the comments that J.K. Rowling has been saying on Twitter. Yeah, uh, and, and that's was... kind of the elephant in the room where it's like, obviously, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing our job to to ignore that. Where obviously J.K. Rowling, through her social channels, has been outspokenly transphobic, uh, like unequivocally so, uh, to an extent where the developers of this game, who we don't even know to the extent they're attached to the IP at all, they might just work at the studio, things like that, and they're anxious about it because obviously when you tie the creator so strongly to what she's built and she has kind of revealed herself to be an awful person in that respect that's just a hard thing like obviously she is going to benefit from sales of this game but then that isn't the fault of the people who make it so is it right to support it or is it right not to support it and you're never going to land in a place that's 100 percent the right answer some people can divorce the idea of a game from its creator, especially when this game's creators are Avalanche Software, as much so as Harry Potter is a creation of J.K. Rowling. So obviously it's the sort of thing where there is, to my perspective, no absolutely right way to approach this as in what's what's in the right and what's in the wrong. Yeah, I it, when I saw the tweets uh, obviously not the first thing I thought of because I'd be I'd be kind of small-minded, but like I remember the next day I think it must have been near the the podcast because I instantly went, oh crap, I can't. Really no, I remember do. that because you uh you tweeted about Harry Potter RPG and then I re- tweeted a reply. We had talked about it briefly and then like yeah. the next day Rowling gave some awful awful twit tweets about it and then it's just like well what's do i leave this up do i delete it like what's the right thing to do as far as i understand rpg site will cover this game but as we have kind of shown with our most recent news posts about it we're not going to shy away from the fact that its creator has said these things we're not going to ignore that so that's kind of the stance we're taking i think to ignore it's difficult as well for me to to be like yeah no we still need to talk about it because obviously i want to talk about it i i i already love this game i already want this game more than like most of the stuff we know is coming out besides melody of memory um but i also i i don't really want to like i i purposefully don't mention it as much now i don't make the joke of oh when's harry potter rpg and when i knew that we were talking about it on this podcast like i wanted to start off the podcast going Woo, harry potter week but then i also like I don't know. It just seems it's tarnished it a bit, and that is that is awful. No matter whether you like Harry Potter or not, because people have worked hard on this. People have put a lot of love into it. Like even from just the teaser video we saw, it looks fantastic. Like it looks like everything I want, and yet there's definitely an element of like. like it's always going to have this cloud hanging over it. So it is. It's good to know it's coming. It's good to know that. Even the developers are kind of like, yeah, that was stupid. We don't really want to, no, we don't like that. And it's coming supposedly late 2021. So we've got some more concrete details about it. They were coming sooner or later, but I think now kind of was the right time to not reveal it, but for details to come out because yeah we know it's say, not we know it's not cross-gen or whatever. We know it's clearly a next-gen property. Like one that. other small nugget here was supposedly that original leak back in 2018 
was authentic, but they stated that most things since then are not, according yeah. to this anonymous tipster to Bloomberg. So like I know there was like a Reddit post, I think like a couple like a month ago or so, roughly a month ago, that it was supposedly a Warner Brothers marketing marketing employee talking about like the game in detail in terms of skill trees and romance and exploration and Quidditch and things like that. And so supposedly, according to what we can infer here, that might not be as accurate. Maybe it is, but not according to this anonymous employee anyway. When it was um, originally leaked, and again, this this might be false also. The, the nature of leaks is that we won't know until it's properly revealed, and we probably won't even know until the game's fully out. Alongside that leak, uh, there's quite a lot of details revealed um, that sort of like match up with what was being shown, like the fact that you're a fifth year student who's entered late into the into the year, uh, and that you can make good or bad decisions. Like it, it was only like little details like that. They were posted by the same person who posted the video that is authentic. So I would take I would take that as true at this point. Yeah, I I can't wait. Like it's sad that I can't be more excited yet. Um, hopefully, you know you know what the sad thing is as well. I don't want to get like super political, but then I also don't think we should be like politics isn't to do with gaming because that, that's just a stupid view. But it's sad that she is doubling down on the views. There is no attempt to be like, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, or hey, I'm going to shut up now. Like every time you check her Twitter, it's yeah, I'm still making these. Stupid claims. And it's just yeah, I, I, if Twitter is going to permanently ban uh, Leonard, they should uh, ban her too, because the rhetoric that she's spitting is starting to get to the same uh, level as he his. There's really no doubt about it now. Like, I know sometimes Twitter drama is maybe not worth it, but like Stephen King kind of made a statement that was maybe a little bit vague and hard to read. And she's kind of tweeted at support of him. And then he basically clarified and said, yes, trans women are women. And then like JK Rowling deleted her support tweet. Pretty much very clear, like, oh, okay. (laughs) She definitely disagrees with that statement, which is clearly not a type of statement you should be disagreeing with. So, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to, uh, as far obviously plans can change and it all effectively, final word comes down to Alex Donaldson. I hate to throw them under the bus, but we're planning on covering this. Uh, but we're not going to shy away from stating that if you don't want to, if you don't want to support this game because of these attachments, then we're not going to judge you for that. If you do want to support it because you want to support the studios uh, and the developers working on it, we're not going to judge against that either. So just trying to make all the information out there and allow people to come up with their own priorities in terms of where, well, you know, what they will do with their money and their time in 2021. Um, I don't know if you want to edit this out of the podcast, but like just to show our support, like we do have a trans person on our staff and he's kind of a part-time contributor. He did our review for Rune Factory. So like we are definitely on board in supporting the identity. Right, yeah, like I'm not going to edit that out. I'll keep this in. Trans rights are human rights. Right. Like, and we are, we're not going to definitely shy away from stating that unequivocally. It would be it would be remiss of us if we didn't go to that. So the next topic, uh, this is one that just came out yesterday, I believe, uh, maybe the day before. 
but we got more details about Horizon Zero Dawn's PC version, which we knew was coming. First it was teased, then it was confirmed, and now we have a release date and other details about it. So Horizon Zero Dawn Complete Edition will be releasing on PC on August 7th through both Steam and the Epic Game Store. And the trailer for it is actually, I think, kind of a trailer that more PC games should have, where it kind of uh, shuffles together gameplay footage as well as like PC features. First of all, it starts with like an ultra wide where it like crops the uh, the aspect ratio to show yes, we're supporting ultra wide resolutions. Then it like just shows some gameplay. Then it goes into like it's this is so kind of like nerdy, without lack of a better word, but. It goes into like the like, configuration menu where it shows like the sliders for like FOV and like details like going up and down. And then like the top YouTube comment was like, you know that this turns us PC gamers on because it does <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, uh, and then of course, alongside the trailer, they gave like a more detailed FAQ about does it support this? Does it support that? What, what are the options here and there? And it, by all accounts, based on what they showed, it really seems like they are going the distance here where it's not just going to be like a straight port. It'll play on, on PC as it did on PS4. Like they're, you'll have the uncapped frame rate. You have the uh, 4k or the ultra wide. You got improved foliage geometry or, or uh, animations, things like that. So uh, I've got uh, a new screenshots for it. All the screenshots that they shared are on ultra wide, which I thought was an interesting uh, decision, but kind of shows how committed they are to that format. But yeah, I kind of have a random comment here. I didn't realize that Horizon Zero Dawn has 12 voiceover languages. That's just nuts to me. Yeah. Yeah. English, French, Italian, German, Spanish, Arabic, Japanese, Polish, Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese, Russian, and uh, Latin American Spanish. Just Sorry. That, that, I, just, I, I just think that's cool, personally. That is kind of cool. And that then uh, cool. I haven't played this. And I want to. So this is like perfect opportunity for me. And it'll also kind of be, obviously, earlier this year, we got the announcement of a sequel, uh, Horizon Forbidden West, coming out tentatively next year, planned for 2021, PS5. So this will be a good opportunity to kind of like re-immerse yourself or re-familiarize yourself. Or if you're like me, play for the first time. So, and this, like we said, is kind of the first pure Sony game to end up on PC, we had kind of like those tangential ones, like with the Quantic Dream games or uh, Death Stranding. But this is the one that's actually being published by. Here, let me actually go to the Steam page real quick. Uh, who do they list as the publisher? Is it still Sony Mobile? Let's see. Was it Sony Mobile for PlayStation Death Mobile Inc.? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting tag, but. Uh, Death Stranding was not published by. Isn't being published oh, by. Same. That was five oh five, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's saying, what I was. Yeah. That's what I was saying. That it was like, it wasn't it's not really a Sony, a Sony game. game. Yeah, where Horizon is. I would, because uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned it like in the in like early podcasts, but originally I was always like the Horizon. Uh, in fact, it might have just been the one where we talked about the the leaks about a, a potential sequel, where I was like, oh god, yeah, I don't really like Horizon very much. I would like to backpedal. Far away from that <laughs> statement, because like I said, I really enjoyed it in the end. Uh, so I, I really want to see what you think about it, Brian. Like, I'm kind of jealous that you get to play it like the best possible quality ever and like for the first time. 
Yeah, like we obviously, uh, Natalie reviewed both the uh, the main game and the expansion for us and thought highly of both. And word of mouth for the game has always been pretty high with just kind of like a few common caveats, like melee combat isn't that good or whatever, but it's not supposed to be, things like that. And it's like, well, let me just play it and come to my own opinion and see if I like it or not. So we also finally got details for the, this is more kind of a game service update, but uh, Monster Hunter World. Yes, we're back to our February ways of talking about Monster Hunter or uh but they obviously had kind of put a lot of their uh so early in april that's when they kind of lined up their pc and uh console roadmaps so that every all their updates are aligned now there's no more like offset and then like right after that they had to delay because of covid considerations and things like that so the next dragon is alatrion i don't know exactly where that guy comes from i don't know if james can elucidate about how his like legacy is yeah, he was the multiplayer final boss for Monster Hunter Try on the Wii. Cool. I love that you just know that. Like that, that's awesome. Just second hand. <laughs> yeah. So the main thing about this guy, and it was also a gimmick when he first appeared, was that so for the longest time, most of the final bosses for Monster Hunter games have been these quote unquote black dragons, and it used to be a. Uh, um, I'm not sure the best way to put it. It used to be a thing where they wouldn't talk about the final boss until after, like, the, even after the game came out, they wouldn't directly talk about them. But as they've been adding in these Black Dragons to Iceborne, they've kind of broken that idea because, like, they've outright said that Safi Jiba, which was the previous, like, huge monster that was added to the game that wasn't a variant, uh, does count as a Black Dragon in the... Uh, like, like on technicalities and stuff, which is weird. Um, so Latrion, the main thing with him is that while most monsters in Monster Hunter have a specific set, like, element to them, like, obviously, uh, Valkana is um, very ice. It's ice-based, very icy. And then you have stuff like um, Lunastra, which is fire, where you have stuff... Well, where you have stuff Most of like, them are pretty clearly coded, yeah. Yeah, um, Alachion, the thing with him is that he he's elementally unstable, and he can swap between a number of elements, not on the fly, but like every so often he'll change his element, which means that his attacks will deal different types of damage, which means that going into the fight you have to account for that, because it's very hard to have good elemental coverage for everything. <laughs> so... Let's say you're weak to ice, and suddenly he's starting to shoot out ice attacks. Well, you better be very, very careful. Hmm. Not to mention one of the things they did talk about in the developer diary is that um, there's actually a reason to want to use elemental weapons now, because when he switches elements, he'll use, he'll send out an area of effect, effect attack, almost similar to Lanostra's one, which does dot damage where um, you actually want to weaken it, because when he's charging it up, if you attack him with elemental uh, weapons, it'll lessen the damage that he's able to deal with that AoE. So, um... Offense is a good defense. 
Yeah, like, and this has always been the thing with Monster Hunter, but, like, except for, like, very specific weapons, there's been very little reason to go with elemental attacks. Like, maybe it's a bit different with uh, what you use, Brian, because, like, Longsword, there is a benefit to having different Longswords with different elemental, um, like, statuses to them, because, like, Longsword does more attacks than, like, say, a Greatsword, because, like, if I use a Greatsword, well... I'm going to be doing like draw attacks and charge attacks. So it's not really going to get much from elemental uh, damage. It's better to just like go for straight raw. But um, I dealt a little bit with uh, dual blades and it seems like the quote unquote meta for dual blades is to, to have one for different elements. So basically the more damage that a weapon deal, like the more times that a weapon can attack in a short period, the more that elemental damage comes into play. But uh, even Latreon, there's going to be a reason for people to have elemental builds regardless of their weapon. Um, the other thing the uh, Dev Diary talked about is that not just Latreon, but a new variant monster, Frostfane Barioth, is being added to the game. Which is interesting, because um, the previous two variants that were added, um, Furious Rajang and uh, Raging Bracadios, yeah. Yeah, Bracadios. Uh, both of those already existed in Monster Hunter. Like, they, they've been tweaked a bit with Iceborne, but the ideas of those two variants already existed. Like, uh, Raging Brachidios was in 4 Ultimate. I don't know if he was in Generations Ultimate. Yeah, he was in 4 Ultimate. Uh, Furious Rajane had... He was kind of like a variant before variants were even a thing, similar to how um, the... Uh, Yangaruga variant was kind of like a variant before variant sort of thing. So both of those, like all of those were all like already existed in the series, but um, Frostfang Barioth, this is entirely new. Like it's never been in a previous game before. So even more so than a good portion of the content that's been added to Iceborne post-launch, this is entire, almost entirely new, which is pretty cool. Honestly, um, I would say Monster Hunter World for me it's probably like the biggest example of a game that I know I would love. I have played and really, really enjoyed, and then fell so far back from like where it is now that I just don't think I can ever catch up. Like I, I played it at launch, right alongside Dragon Ball Fighters. Like there's been so much added, and there is like an entirely new. And they're planning on supporting it for like game. several more months based on the roadmap. Oh. I want to play it, but I can't. It's just, I just, it would just be like trying to learn another language at this point, I think. Yeah, because we know that there's going to be another returning monster in fall. And we don't know if they're going to support it anymore after that. Probably not, because it sounds like they were going to support it for a year. And like the fall will be one year since Iceborne came out. And I, even if they stop after like that one last returning monster, I feel like they've been doing a a very admirable job with supporting the expansion post-launch, even more so, I'd say, than how they supported the base game post-launch. Like, um, I know that there was a certain subset of people that were kind of disappointed with how the base game Monster Hunter World was supported with free updates, which, first of all, we're not paying, you weren't paying season passes. It wasn't, en like, entirely free. I don't really see the point. Like, they weren't trying to make it a games-as-a-service type deal. Like, um, on the flip side, though, like, I just more, it feels like they've seen how, like, engaged people have been with the game, and they've been kind of tapping into that. Because as, at the same time as they've been adding new content, they've been pushing it a bunch of, like, 
cosmetic DLC, like time to uh, like uh, title update drops, and also almost in conjunction with some of these uh, festivals that they have on a seasonal basis, which uh, is probably a good segue to talk about the Sizzling Spice Summerfest that they announced, which is um, really interesting. One thing I do absolutely love about Monster Hunter's events is that they go all out with changing the uh, looks of the... Uh, um, get um the hunting hubs and whatnot. So like um, a few like just this year they've had like an alien themed one in Selyana. They've had a uh, lunar new year one. They've had a spring one, and now they have the um, now they have one that's based off of a kind of like Brazil festival like type deal with um the way things look, and it's really interesting. It's got a bit of a puke puke theme with some of the stuff there, and it's in a there's an absolutely hilarious but adorable poogie costume that's being added where the poogie is wearing like an egg, and then on the egg is a kuliaku. So when the poogie is like standing on its hind legs, it looks like he's in an egg that a kuliaku is holding. And it's just uh, adorable. It's, the it, best. Yeah. Um Honestly, I'd say like the biggest upgrade with Iceborne is just the quality of the Pookie costumes, if anything. Holy crap. <laughs> it but yeah, um obviously uh based off of the demographics of this podcast, we're implicitly biased about Monster Hunter, because both Brian and I are are very much whales when it comes to how much time we've put into the game. But uh I'll just say that like I Gave it a ten. I gave Iceborne a ten out of ten last year, and the support that they've shown it so far, like I don't think that ten was misplaced. If anything, I feel even more strongly about it now than I did at launch. Yeah, I know games as a service. I know games as a service, and a lot of context can be kind of like an ugly, an ugly series of words. And some people might still argue about whether or not Monster Hunter counts, but as close as it gets, it's I think the best, one of the best implementations of the idea. I'll just say, and obviously this is always going to be subjective, and it's, it's going to depend on the person, but with the way Monster Hunter does it, where there's these seasonal events and it's only cosmetics that you directly buy, there's no loot boxes, and there's like, and the cosmetics are relatively fairly priced, like, at most are like five bucks, which yeah. is not that bad, like, there's been a few that I've bought, and especially like with some of the work they put into some new pendants, like the one where it just makes like this, uh, kind of like Palumu kite that follows behind you, which is adorable as hell. It's like, I've bought stuff like handwear outfits, I've bought stuff like costumes, I've bought stuff like pendants, and it's like, I generally haven't bought anything like that in other games-as-a-service type of games, and I feel like a big reason for it is that it doesn't feel like um, playing Monster Hunter I need to, because obviously there's a ton of, like, cosmetic options built into the game itself just by, like, like, the whole point of the game is, like, building cosmetic stuff, or, well, not even just cosmetic, but you know what I mean. So, like, seeing this optional stuff, and it doesn't feel like I'm being forced to, it's just like, hey, we're having this event going on, we're also releasing these, like, X, Y, and Z, and it's like, well, we've been giving, like, releasing so much free content, there's no season pass, there's no battle pass, it feels like you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll buy one or two things with each title update. It feels like the amount of like free content that's been coming into the game more than warrants it. Yeah, and uh, 
the uh, the comparison that I think of right now is Fantasy Star Online 2, where they say, we've got these new cosmetic sets, but they're all behind the scratch tickets where you basically pay money and gamble for them. And then if you get a duplicate, you can kind of trade those for like some menial things, but otherwise it's just all pure RNG. That's a little bit different because it's a free-to-play game, but yeah. From the outside looking in, like, uh, I would I would definitely agree. I would say that Monster Hunter World feels like it's always having something new added to a game that's already massive. Even if you don't count Iceborne, I think they have done a fantastic job of supporting it. I will say, though, just as a very specific thing, is that I thought Safajiva was a bit of a letdown. Like, I fought him, like, three times, and then I kind of had really no reason to fight him anymore. Which you might say is good, like, oh, it respects your time or whatever, but... I felt like there was a lot of buildup for this guy being like this big endgame thing that you'd be doing pretty regularly, and then he kind of wasn't, at least not for me. Maybe if you use like a bunch of different weapon types or something, and you needed to get all those relics to upgrade them. But like compared to Cult Teroth in the base game, which I did like dozens and dozens of times, and you might just say like, well, that's just because Cult Teroth is terrible RNG drops. But I almost feel like they went too far, swung back in the other direction for Safajiva. I don't necessarily... Well, I can understand that, but I don't necessarily think it's a huge problem with Monster Hunter World, especially with Iceborne, because, well, just to get to the point where you're fighting Safijiva is going to be, like, probably at least 200 hours. Like, even if you're using, like, Defender weapons to kind of just rush through, like, base game Monster Hunter World and whatnot. Because you have to, like, get your Master Rank up, you need to get a night equipment for that. Like, let alone if you were playing through it naturally like I did. Like, I... Like, obviously, I have, like, over 700 hours in the PS4 version of Monster Hunter World. Plus Holy I... crap. So, yeah. It, again, I really, it's not even a question of if uh, Monster Hunter World has enough content. Like, it's just... I, it's it's the best game in the series with Iceborne. Like, just flat out. All right. It feels nice to be talking about Monster Hunter again. Very clearly and unequivocally an RPG. No questions asked. Uh, I'm being cheeky. Uh, you can go either way. I don't really care. Uh, but uh, speaking of Monster Hunter, during a Capcom shareholder meeting, they did talk a little bit about the future of the series. Uh, and Kite Steinbuck did kind of a translation for us and put it up on the site as a lengthy news post. Uh, the two main fallouts from this information here were, one, that Monster Hunter World is not being planned to come to switch i'm sorry but then also about now this is kind of interesting apparently one of the shareholders introduced the question about whether or not the series would develop a title more specifically geared towards like middle and high school students so the the investor used that language and then capcom basically replied that they do have a development project for a monster hunter that can be enjoyed by middle and high school students so that wording I thought was kind of particular rather than just saying younger fans or whatever, but I guess it might have been seeded by that specific investor who might have kids. I don't know. Uh, and um, we've kind I of think, seen this before with Monster Hunters. Go ahead. Actually, yeah. there's a very specific reason why I asked it that way. The implication like, is about kids playing a mobile portable version of Monster Hunter, which Monster Hunter World is clearly not. So like something in the vein of the PSP entries or something. So I think that was the implication of school kids playing it is like some portable version of monster hunter presumably for switch uh but who knows that yeah. what were we gonna say james have in development 
Yeah. Um, so if you follow um, Gaijin Hunter on Twitter, who's like one of the big like Monster Hunter community guys, along with, um, well, Eric's and whatnot. Uh, well, what he said is that this, so people have been asking and like uh, Capcom investor means for a while, is there going to be a Monster Hunter on Switch? And they'd say no comment. So he feels like that this question was very obviously tuned to kind of ask the same question, but it, but in a more roundabout way. So, yeah, his impression is, is that, yeah, they're making a Monster Hunter for Switch. And honestly, it makes sense because, well, developing the sequel to Monster Hunter World on Next Gen is going to take a while. But Monster Hunter is almost like a yearly franchise. So it makes sense that they want to have something to release Maybe not this year because of COVID, like pushing things back, but um, it it would make entirely too much sense to release a Switch Monster Hunter while um, they're developing the sequel to uh, Monster Hunter World for next gen. And that makes sense because even like if you look back at the series history, there was a while like okay, so there was Monster Hunter Try and Wii, but at the same time there was like Free Me Unite and Portable Third on PSP. And for a while there, there was the Monster Hunter home console-like series, and there was the Monster Hunter portable, portable series. So, like, even back then, there was, there was, like, precedent where they would have the home console version and the portable version. And if anything, it just seems like a matter of course that, that, that we might see, like, a Monster Hunter portable fourth or a Monster Hunter portable fifth or whatever they call it. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the series history is on portable consoles, PSP, 3DS, uh, Vita. Are there any on oh, Vita? How... Uh, technically, there was Monster Hunter Frontier. Ah. But yeah, how so and I'm, I'm 100%. Get... Go ahead. Monster Hunter World is like massive and graphically really good looking. And like, even on my PS4, it doesn't always run perfectly. Like, were people really expecting it on the Switch? Like, well, that just seems unrealistic. Uh... Like I'm, uh, like the, they might go with a more cartoony art style or something like that. Which I, I, some people might look at this and say like, oh, this isn't the real Monster Hunter. But I, I, I think it's okay for series to kind of like dial up and down the level of like quote unquote maturity, as if that's something you can measure on a linear scale. So like even like the 3DS games had a bit more of a cartoony art style, like even compared to like uh, the PSP games. Um, which honestly was a good decision for a handheld game because, like, one of the issues I remember having with the PSP versions was that there was too much, like, foliage and stuff that made it, like, a pain in the ass to see things and, like, the maps because back then they were just porting the maps from the PS2 versions over. So, um, obviously that was uh, kind of limited to what they could do. But, yeah, I, I for a while now I've expected them to release, say, Monster Hunter on Switch. It makes too much sense. There is a market there that they can appeal to. Capcom already obviously released uh, Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate on Switch, which despite it being a port of the 3DS version, did have like numerous upgrades to visuals and performance as well as controls. So um, it, it feels like it's only a matter of time. It, it really does. If this, if there is a series entry released on Switch, I would probably try it now that, because remember Monster Hunter World was my first and only one, but I've really kind of been going really ham on it like i put like not 700 hours but like 400 uh if a, if a switch version released i probably wouldn't go on it as hard but i'd still want to play it just to see like okay what does this student new what does it do differently what does it do the same just kind of almost like that, that academic thing we talk about right just kind of want to see like what they do with it um yeah 
It's going to be interesting to see how the game plays, though, because, like, a big part of what makes Monster Hunter World so unique is very CPU-intensive tasks that the Switch CPU probably won't be able to replicate. Yeah. So it's very possible that we'll see some of the quality of life features for Monster Hunter World make their, like, return in a Switch entry, but there's going to be some things that very specifically aren't going to make the cut. Like, I'm not sure if we're going to go back to instant zones, more akin to something like, I guess, Adam, like, basically Monster Hunter used to be more like something like Fantasy Star, where they would be instant zones and you would hop between each zone. So we might see something more like that instead of an interconnected map, where we might just see less, like, interactivity in the map. Like, we might not have stuff like falling rocks, we might not have stuff like uh, bugs you can interact with, like, to make flashes and stuff like that. Monsters on the map at the same time. Yeah. Well, almost definitely it's going to be limited to two monsters. So, yeah. Be down for more months on the restart on the whole thing, you know? Yeah, stay, stay, uh, stay up to date from day one, and then never allow yourself to well, fall behind. The healthiest way to play games. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one last comment I just do want to say is that I don't know much about game engines, just like what you can glean covering them, but I do, like... Monster Hunter World is built on MT Framework, which is like actually a really old engine, but the game still looks really nice. So I don't know what Blackmagic they're doing, but sometimes using something that the developers, like a tool set that they're just really in tune with and familiar with, like can have really good results just from the, as, as a final product. Though it does, it does make you wonder, like Capcom has a lot of cool engines on the proposal, like the RE engine and things like that. Like could a, could a Monster Hunter game be built in that? I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, Capcom are just... Like, we didn't see as much of it, I'd say, last generation, but this generation, we've been seeing returns to it. Like, Capcom just has some, like, like optimization Wizards. programming gods at their staff. It's just in- amazing some of the things they can uh, push out. Like, DMC5 looks and runs amazing. Resident Evil, obviously, continues to look and run amazing. It's just, yeah. Uh, one thing to note is that MT Framework does already have a port on Switch, so they could, even if they don't port Monster Hunter World, they can probably port some of the uh, infrastructure that went into developing Monster Hunter World to Switch, which probably does support the theory that, yeah, they could just make a Switch game because, well, they already have the engine working, and they can, even if they can't use everything, they can transfer over at least some of their development to a Switch game. At least smooth out the pipeline, yeah. The last two notes here for the podcast are kind of more just general industry ones. First of all, uh, Microsoft announced that they are going to have their component for the Summer Game Fest, the umbrella uh, of demos underneath Jeff Keighley's label. Uh, And a lot of this is, this is starting on July uh, 21st. And a lot of this is the same demos that we kind of saw on Steam during their version of the Summer Game Fest. Get demos like Haven and Chris Tales and things like that. So this is just specifically geared uh, Xbox console games. But if that falls under your umbrella, then that starts on July 21st. There is and only then... one game. Uh, what? Psychonauts 2 is the only uh, one. Psychonauts 2 and I'll be happy. So in two weeks, I might be the happiest boy alive. In two weeks, I might be disappointed. We'll see. I'd love if uh, Tunic could be part of it. And then they specifically give some verbiage about how these demo- these demos are not like normal demos. They're more in progress. They're more of what you would have played at a PAX or an E3. So not not super polished, more in development. 
which I think is actually kind of cool because uh, you can't always expect vertical slices to be perfectly representative of the final product that's a years away or a year away. And the last this note, should have happened oh, a while go ahead. Ago. I'm surprised that this is obviously COVID. Oh, what 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 I'm leading into? Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know how to how best to introduce this. I guess I'll just go right in. So, 2K, the publisher behind uh, NBA 2K, uh, has put up pre-orders for both the current and next-gen editions of NBA 2K21, and the next-gen edition to pre-order it costs sixty-nine ninety-nine U.S. dollars. So, it's the first standard edition game clearly marked at the $10 price hike compared to the typical $60 retail release, which is something I think maybe the writing has been on the wall for years now. And I think people have kind of flirted with, with like deluxe editions or like where you'd be, you'd be pre-ordering the $70 version of the game anyway, but it's, but it would always have like something attached to it to make it like seem like a premium version or something like that. But here it's basically like, here's a standard edition, legitimately marked standard edition for next gen, $69.99. So I guess, what do we think about, was this long overdue? Is this asking too much? What do we think? I'm, I think that inherently the prices of games raising in and of itself isn't a problem. I feel like most people agree with that. But the one thing I've seen a bunch of people say as kind of like a qualifier to that statement that I do agree with is that, yeah, raise the game, the price of games. But if you're going to do that, you can't do that when your game is a Skinner box, like a sports game where you have like NBA and you have 2K. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, raise the price of the game. But this game already is super exploitative. It makes so much money already through its microtransactions. If it was any other game, I don't think people would be making a big deal about it. But because it's a sports game, which already does have that sort of, uh, um, sh does have that implicit um, shadow surrounding it, well, of course people are going to be upset about it because it's like you don't need that. You don't need more money for this next gen version. You already make billions of dollars off of microtransactions. Yeah, and the fact that they are the first ones out where they say it, it's kind of a bad look. Under that Not to mention that for 2K, I believe, um, NBA 2K, the only way... So both um, EA and uh, 2K are allowing you to upgrade to next-gen versions of like FIFA and um, NBA 2K, respectively. Well, Madden 2. The problem is, is that 2K, the only version that lets you upgrade to the next-gen version is the $100, like special version so yeah. it's hey, yeah honestly with, with their sports titles they're just like i've seen it happen to the best of people where these ultimate teams and stuff like that just really get a grip and uh, i don't know it works me the wrong way I, actually interestingly just sparking from this conversation i've realized uh when i was on uh game which is the uk equivalent of gamestop I was looking at Crash Bandicoot, the upcoming one, which I somehow haven't talked about. Uh, by the way, it looks amazing. And the price for that is listed as fifty four ninety nine, which is the highest you see it listed on game, unless it's like a special edition, is usually forty nine ninety nine. 
So I'm wondering if, like, maybe that is indicative of some sort of price rise. For, like, what is uh, just game? just to just to help calibrate? What is a typical sixty dollar game in pounds in the UK? Forty nine ninety nine. Very rarely it goes above that. Uh, personally, if I'm buying a game. I'd never really get it for retail price anyway. Like I'll find websites where it's like a little bit cheaper. Uh, so the so the fifty four ninety nine pounds is the same story in yeah. British yeah. dollars. Okay, it's like that. That is weird because that wouldn't be the equivalent of sixty nine ninety nine dollars. But it's like there is clearly an increase there, uh, and not it's not an exchange game. So. Not to mention that with this price increase, it's getting to the point where in Canada, apparently, like after tax, it's over a hundred dollars for a new game, which is, uh, yeah, ridiculous. Um, pretty much, I've said all I want to say. Uh, I don't think inherently it's a problem that games are starting to cost more because another thing to consider is that next gen games are going to be on 4K Blu-rays, whereas um, regular Blu-rays are used even for the Xbox One X and the PS4 Pro. So um, there is a difference in the medium used, and I'd imagine that's well, it probably isn't a huge increase in the cost for the discs, especially on a wide scale. There is going to be an, an increase in the cost of the actual material that the games are printed onto, as well as obvious like increases in development costs. That well, then the necessary follow-up ends up being well, then the digital version should be cheaper. Yep, and. That's the thing. We always kind of see this. Like, I remember a big, um, like, even back with the Wii U, like, Nintendo tried to say, hey, we're going to make it so that if you buy a game digitally, you get, like, 5-10% back in, in, like, coins that you can spend towards your next purchase. And, like, it, it it's weird because, like, the industry for almost a decade now has been, like, grappling with the idea like they've been grappling with the idea of saying hey games will be cheaper digitally or hey we can do something to incentivize people to buy it digitally and it feels like now almost insidiously almost that they've kind of given up on that and they're just like well we're getting to the point where some games have more digital copies sold even on console than physical copies like games like destiny or any like games as a service games like games that people are going to continually come back to unsurprisingly they're not going to want to have to if they're playing something else, they don't want to have to take out the disc that's almost always going to be in their system, so it'll be like, screw it, I'll buy it digitally. And now that we're getting to that point, it's like, well, it's become normalized that digital versions just cost the same, and that you're going to pay for the convenience of it, if anything, which is a little sad, but also I can understand it. Um, like, I know that, like, in like Japan, like at, when I import games, some like almost always the digital versions, if anything, are more expensive than the physical versions of games. And that's even taking into account like the shipping costs if you're going to import a game and stuff like that. So it's just really weird how this, the industry has been tackling the digital like uh, adoption period. And it feels like now we've just reached a point where it's like, yeah, we're not going to do anything. It's just going to be the same price, and people are going to buy them digitally anyways because people have grown accustomed to it. So I have two follow-up comments. I guess the one is the fact that uh, one of us needs to point out, or not needs, should point out that games have been, quote-unquote, $60 for a long time. So obviously the value of the dollar has gone down. And I'm, when I say the dollar, I just mean in general. Uh, but... So the the publishers have been getting around this with microtransactions or deluxe editions or things like that, but maybe 
we're finally at a point where that simply isn't enough. But then, uh, of course, then you fall back to the idea of, well, 2K of all people is the first one to admit that is kind of not the greatest optics. Uh, I'd go as far as to say that 2K being the first ones to push it has kind of poisoned the well on the discussion. You would think if 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 the first game to be announced as a seven dollar standard seventy dollar standard game was I don't know Dragon Quest twelve or Final Fantasy sixteen some big single player minimal microtransaction game would be a little bit more palatable potentially yeah it also makes me wonder how much services like Xbox Game Pass or dare I say Stadia might is alleviate the right word might help transition some the way some people think of gaming as we purchase a game to own or rather as more as the same way we do watching shows where most people are are fine only not not specifically the fact of streaming it but is only owning the game as part of a service it's, it's attached to whether that's game pass or or something else it might just fall on the uh kind of the priorities of the specific person on whether or not They'd rather own the games, regardless of whether they're 70 bucks, or if they're absolutely fine subscribing to two or three services and still playing the majority of what they want, but not ever having actual like ownership. I think we I actually think have a game. pretty good argument that people still in gaming still do want to own their games. If if nothing else, then for like look at the absolutely mind-blowing success of Sea of Thieves on Steam. Yeah, because that game's one. been on Game Pass has been well, it's been on Game Pass since the service started, and if you wanted to play it on PC, well, subs have been dirt cheap for ever since the service started. But despite that, we've had like well over sixty thousand concurrent users on that game for like almost a month. It's been blowing up, and obviously that's like a full well, not a full sixty dollar, but it's a forty dollar purchase, and it's like well. Obviously, there's going to be a certain subset of people that do use Game Pass, but that's not a number to scoff at that's playing on Steam. And it really does show that, at least for gaming, people do like to own the games that they're playing. At least that's the takeaway that I get from it. You do wonder, though, where you're not going to pay $70 for, for a gamble for something you're not sure on. So maybe you'll also be subscribed to one of these services to play it. And then you like it, and then you follow up and get it, and maybe that's what people are going yeah. to see of these, where you that's might not say thing. like, "I'm going to pay seventy bucks for I don't know, Man Eater, <laughs> Man Eater Two, or something like that." <laughs> uh, but you might play it if it comes out on a service that you're paying five or ten bucks a month for. That's a similar argument, not the not for seventy dollar games, but a similar argument that the uh, Outer Wild developers made in their uh, no clip documentary about the game basically saying that they feel that um, services like Game Pass are going to really help um, the more niche games that maybe would have found an issue with people wanting to buy them because it's like, well, I'm not going to spend this money on a game that I don't know is going to be something I'm really going to enjoy, especially if a game like Outer Wilds where it's like inherently a mystery and it's kind of like, well, you want to recommend it, but you can't say anything about it because that kind of spoils the surprise and whatnot. But uh, I think a similar argument definitely can be made about more expensive games, like $70 games. If they're on Game Pass, it's like, okay, I'm not sure if I want to spend $70, but I can use Game Pass as like a demo. And if I know that I'm, I enjoy it, then I can now, okay, I can either buy it now so I can just outright own it, or I can wait until it's on sale and it be like, okay, now I can buy it. 
I guess we'll maybe see like a nice marriage of the two where $70 game is a higher hurdle to overcome to ownership. Then we'll have these other avenues to which you can play games that you're less sure on or you don't want to drop $70 for. Well, we don't even know for certain that the $70 thing is going to be widespread, but I guess we've kind of seen the notches start start forming with 2K and I guess with George's example of Crash being 54 pounds. I'm the sort of person where I hardly rarely buy my games at full price anyway. Usually I'll have some sort of deal or coupon or, or buy it on a sale, but obviously not all of them. Like I bought Xenoblade Definitive Edition full price. So it's something we're all going to have to get used to if it seems like it's going to end up where it's, where it's leading. I think games are definitely, they've definitely increased in value for like, what we're getting is almost, like, I, I never find that spending like, usually probably like 40, 45 pounds on a game, I always find that that is worth it. I'm not like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But then you have to take into account, for example, if you're reviewing a game, you're now going to have to be like, okay, well, is it worth $70, not $60? Like, that's something weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like when I was younger, obviously, if you think in a completely different way, you spend $50 on, for me, like Ocarina of Time or whatever it costs to beat it in a weekend. And I was elated to do that. Like, I was fine. Or now if I spent $60 on a game and I beat it in a weekend, would I feel the same? I'd like to think that I'd be mature enough to, but maybe implicitly I wouldn't. It's hard to know. That really, I think, covers it for this week in news. So a couple of interesting topics, but not a lot in terms of big announcements of new titles uh, or anything like that. Did we guys have any other follow-ups before we start signing off? Uh, just that, as, as a quick mention, um, The World Ends With You as an official Oh yeah, animation. That looks really, really... like The animation on that is incredible. Really good stuff. Um, so the, the context first... here is that they announced an anime adaptation of The World Ends With You at Anime Expo's streaming replacement for its uh, actual event. And it, it seems like it really faithfully adapts the art style of that game. Look beautifully. One of the best looking anime I've seen in a while. Um, and as someone who unfortunately didn't really like the gameplay of the Switch version, like the controls were just cumbersome. I would, I, I loved these characters from the brief bit I saw about them and in Dream Drop Distance. So this is completely up my alley. Well, now we know why they use that artwork as part of their like advertising marketing for Anime Expo yeah. in the first place, huh? Yeah. I'll, um, just a tangent, but if you're going to be playing The World Ends With You in this day and age, just play the DS version. Play the DS version. Like None of the ports, yeah. in my mind, have really been a proper substitute for the original combat system. And we still do have that weird dangling sequel tease question mark from the Switch version? Yeah. So, we'll see. Anyways, uh, you can always find us on our Twitter page at RPG site. We hold this podcast seemingly weekly uh, on Saturdays. You can always find us on our website, RPG site net. You can find us on our YouTube channel, RPG site net, and you can join the discord where we're talking about Final Fantasy and Monster Hunter and all other sorts of RPGs from the link on our homepage and see you next time. Take care.